Hi, my name is Jamil, and you're listening to Public Health World. Join me as I interview people making a difference in the world and their communities through public health and global health alike. Today I'm here with Jacqueline. She's an experienced epidemiologist with a demonstrated history in disease surveillance and investigation, as well as research design and management. She studied her Bachelor of Science in Psychology at the University of Houston, and she recently attained her Master's of Public Health. I apologize in advance. The recording in this one is a little bit bad. I've had uh, a few issues with my microphone. Okay, uh, welcome Jacqueline to the first uh, interview podcast, um, or your first interview podcast, and uh, my first one for this uh, this type of podcast. Um, so yeah, welcome to Public Health World. Thank you, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, no, um, so I suppose uh, right off the bat, um, What's your definition of public health? So um, my definition of public health is the science of prevention. So in regards to both diseases and events, I think that's really important to point out. Um, Events in public health refer to non-disease related issues such as social inequities. So healthcare access, uh, gender-based violence, systemic racism, environmental changes, things like that. Um, Public health aims to prolong and improve the lives of people through organizational efforts. So through um, legislative changes, research, data science, things like that. Um, The beauty of public health in general is just how broad it is. Um, It requires knowledge of multiple disciplines, so both the hard and the soft sciences. So biology, psychology, virology, sociology, many um, different ologies that you can think of. So that's uh, that's what I love about it. Yeah, no, definitely. That Yeah, that's really good. Um, so moving on a bit more, how did you get started in public health? Because I know most people, um, they don't hear about it until like halfway through their degree or even later in a lot of yep. cases. So <laughs> how did you kind of fall into this uh, world of public health? So my story is actually similar. So I actually started off wanting to go to veterinary school, and I completed a year um, before I decided that I didn't like the bureaucracy of the industry and didn't like the corporate takeover that's basically happening in the vet world, at least in my country. Um, and so I decided to switch um, after a year in vet school into um, an MPH program. Um, previous to graduate school, I had research experience when I completed two different internships at my local zoo that focused on research to raise awareness um, on endangered species. Um, in particular, I worked with two species of critically endangered reptiles, uh, I'm sorry, amphibians. And so I designed and managed um, two different studies, one of which involved a retrospective tracing of infectious diseases, which involves epidemiology. At the time, I didn't realize that the experience I was getting would translate um, later in my career. Um, I feel really grateful that I worked with those projects as a foundation for my current career, especially since, I mean, I was working with animals that people have never heard of. So that was really cool. Um, From there, I worked on a large-scale research project that involved um, program evaluation and health um, education in the Texas prison system. So, as I'm sure you can guess, um, the Texas prison system is not super organized in the least bit, and the health education is lacking to the extreme. So, 
Our project focused on an HIV, um, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C focused approach, which basically focuses on testing to identify um, those that are positive and getting either treatment or education to them or both, um, depending on the circumstance. So the focus system is one that's slowly growing, um, mostly in the U.S. as it fills um, a small gap due to our lack of healthcare access. Um, I found my passion and love for viral hepatitis on that project. Um, along with, in general, the whole um, what I call morality diseases, so aka the ones that society tends to judge others on, such as um, sexually transmitted infections or those that can involve um, intravenous drug use, things like that. Um, I also completed a um, mixed methods um, research project during my master's, um, which basically just involves quantitative and qualitative um, data analysis. And what it did, it focused on program evaluation of the entire MPH program. That one was particularly fun because I had never done anything with qualitative data. Um, that takes a little bit more time to analyze, but you can get really good information from it. Um, right now, I work as an epidemiologist at a health department in Texas where I'm the lead epidemiologist for viral hepatitis, zoonosis, and COVID. Um, in particular, my specialties and interests lie in um, viral hepatitis and zoonotic diseases. Um, I also do some consulting work on the side with podcasts and private companies in regards to disease investigations and data analysis. And I'm currently working on a publication um, looking at occupational burnout in veterinary medicine. And then I plan on applying for my PhD um, in the near future. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so... What is epidemiology and why is it actually why is why is it important? So epidemiology um, is a subfield in public health that looks to study um, the distribution patterns and determinants of health and um, I'm sorry of diseases and events. And just keep in mind, I defined events earlier because that's really important. Many people don't realize that um, we don't just do diseases; we also do events. So that's just really important. I wanted to make sure to mention that um, determinants basically refers to risk factors. So epidemiology and epidemiologists are important because we assist in determining where a disease or event is um, coming from and who it will impact and how we can either slow it down or completely stop it entirely. So examples of this would be interventions that focus on disease um, or event reduction, um, legislative changes, research, um, things of that nature. I'm a huge fan of research because research provides hard data and numbers that can be presented um, by experts that can lead to real world changes, um, at least in theory. <laughs> so, so with that, the other question I kind of was kind of interested because I don't know an awful lot about epidemiology myself. It's not something I'm mm -hmm. looking at going into at least. Um, but does chronic disease fall into epidemi epi epidemiology at any point? Yes. So, I mean, hepatitis C is technically a chronic disease. That's Most people point. don't know about it until they have cirrhosis of the mm. liver, especially in the United States, because we just don't have access to testing mm. like other countries do. So it definitely falls into it. There's a lot of people that um, prefer more exciting diseases or the newer diseases like COVID. And then there's people like me that actually prefer more of the chronic standard diseases. Um, diabetes is technically a chronic disease as well. So it definitely falls under well, there. Yeah. I mean, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all yep. those as had, it's like yep. the, the lifestyle diseases as they, as the mm -hmm. other term for them. Um, yep. And that's something I'm quite interested in, um, especially coming from. And it's it's one that gets mis, um, uh, underlooked a lot, too. Um, at least in my state of, of Texas, we don't really do anything with chronic diseases. So um, it depends on where you live, I guess. But a lot of it's just, you know, it's underfunded and people just don't do a lot with it. Yeah, so. l l last time I checked, you guys have one of the highest rates of 
um, uh, like heart, like um, chronic related, chronic disease related deaths in. Yeah, that's uh, that's what happens yeah. when we can't go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, as I said, yeah, no, I, I'm I am very grateful. Medicine goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, I am very grateful for living in Australia. Free healthcare for all. I um, I've heard very good things. Mm. I am very jealous. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no. So, um, so going more to a lot more the classic epidemiology, like the infectious diseases and especially zoonotic diseases, which is something we're both interested in. What causes and where did they actually come from? So infectious diseases, by definition, they simply refer to a disease that is caused by a microorganism that is invading a host. So there's multiple types. So viral, bacterial, prion, which is basically a protein infection, uh, helminths, which is parasitic, and then fungal. So where they come from is determined by what infectious disease it is, basically. So, for example, hepatitis C is transmitted via blood or bodily fluid, whereas murine typhus is transmitted via feces from an infected flea, usually as a parasitic host on a domesticated pet. So we can have food or waterborne, meaning they're spread um, via infected food or water that we ingest or are exposed to, while others are bloodborne or sexually transmitted. Um, another type is zoonotic, like we were talking about, which basically refers to diseases that are spread from animals to humans. Um, this can be from the ingestion of contaminated meat or bites or scratches from infected animals. Um, a subset of this is vector-borne diseases, which I find very interesting. Um, basically, those come from anthropods like uh, mosquitoes, fleas, and ticks. And so examples of those would be uh, typhus um, in general, because there's three types, um, Lyme disease and West Nile. And we have a lot of emerging diseases that fall in that category just because of um, uh, global warming and things like that. Yeah, no, def- that's yeah, really interesting. Um, so, kind of adding on to that as well. Um, according to the World Health Organization, one of the biggest threats um, we're getting is the possibility of a antibiotic-resistant infectious disease. Now, what would actually happen if we say got a strand of deadly bird flu or a strain of um swine flu for instance that could um that that was antibiotic resistant like to all forms because of the amount of uh antibiotics that they that the that they get that the animals are given um during their time growing so to speak uh, we'd be in a lot of trouble. I think that COVID um, is basically a precursor for something a lot worse. And so one of the biggest threats right now that um, I've heard multiple experts talk about is the potential for a novel, in- novel influenza, which would basically mirror what happened with the Spanish influenza. Um, but we are in a position where it could mutate to the point where we could not get it under control. And seeing how, I mean, we can't get people to do basic things like vaccinate and wear a mask and they mutate, they're doing their job great. The virus is mutating like it's supposed to, we would be in a lot of trouble. So an antibiotic resistant um, uh, virus is a very scary thing. And I think a lot of people don't think about it. They think about other things like, you know, how HIV gets the news or COVID, but really there are a lot of underlying um, diseases that are bubbling and we don't, um, we, they don't get enough news about them. So it's, it's definitely a very scary thing that should be on our radar. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, think of like the, I think it's the H1N1 bird flu. Um, yep. I mean, that, that one's just started to s- change the humans in some uh, rural areas in places like Russia, um, where they've mm-hmm. had to just kill all of their animals and b- then burn them just so no one dies, essentially. 
Um, yeah, it's similar to the to the swine flu. Yeah, um, it's yeah, very as, scary. As as I, as I said, I think the World Health Organization about three or four years ago um, did like a scale of worst threats, like like what what could cause a basically civilization civilization breakdown. And I believe mm-hmm. number one or two was an antibiotic resistant superbug. So yep, it's yeah. very very possible. Well, and part of the problem is is there's an overuse of antibiotics as well. And so mm. um, I will say from my time in the veterinary world, um, we tailor make our antibiotics based on weight. Um, we don't just give it to everyone. And it's also part of the problem as well. So there's a lot of issues bubbling. And another problem is I, I can't you know speak to other parts of the world, but at least in the U.S., you know, if you can't go to the doctor, one of the things you'll do is call into a teledoctor and then they just give you antibiotics when it could be a viral infection. You don't need it. So it's, it's little things, you know, little things like not having access to health care that really it branches out and causes a lot of other problems. Yeah. And not to mention that it's like in most meat now as well. So like, if, like for yes. instance, chicken, which is especially in America and Australia, because we have similar standards in a lot of ways of the way that they're um grown so to speak um and the fact that they're given antibiotics in their feed i mean i believe it's 80 or as about 85 percent of all um antibiotics are fed to farm animals not humans Um, yes and it's absolutely crazy um so from a public health standpoint um to prevent an emerging infectious disease or more emerging infectious diseases what could we do from that public health standpoint um, for public health professionals, we can stay informed about emerging infectious diseases because knowledge is power um, and health education so that we can inform the public to the best of our abilities, um, ensuring that we stay up to date on the latest peer review studies and reliable news sources. And I'll say that again, reliable news sources. Um, so that way um, we can answer questions from the public or just provide ins- um, insight or expertise if needed. Um, for non-public health professionals, it can be tricky um, because it's confusing on what sources are reliable and what aren't. It really is. Um, So I highly encourage people to ask questions from experts if they have any or if they're just seeking education on the matter. Um, I will offer that I love health education and deciphering information on that matter. So if anyone of your listeners has questions, they're free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I will gladly offer my expertise. I do that all the time at work. Um, Another thing we can do just in general is just to be cognizant of our activities and decisions. So an example of an emerging infectious disease I have experienced with is Lyme disease. It's absolutely terrifying. It's very cool, but it's, it's very scary. Um, so to prevent exposure to this disease, it's just recommended that you avoid um, the vector, which are, which are ticks. And so basically just be cognizant of tick exposure. So if you're in an area where Lyme disease is endemic and you find a tick on you, you can send it off to um, your local state health department and they'll have it identified and tested. Prevention of zoonotic diseases in general just basically involves vaccinating your pets, keeping them up to date on parasitic prevention, which prevents exposure to those vectors of fleas, ticks, intestinal parasites. So if you're a pet owner, literally just basic veterinary care goes a long way in preventing emerging um, zoonotic infectious diseases. In regards to other emerging infectious diseases, um, unfortunately, many sexually transmitted infections are making a huge comeback right now, especially during the pandemic. So the basic advice for that is just to practice safe sex and just get routine um, STI testing done, just making sure your vaccinations are up to date. As I previously said, novel influenza is a huge concern right now. So just basic small things that we all can do go a long way in preventing um, emerging infectious diseases from becoming a large problem. Prevention, I can't say this enough, is the best tool. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And 
adding on to that, um, considering that um, I believe it's more than half of the um, emerging disease, uh, emerging infectious diseases are coming from the the so-called three animals we eat, or three or four animals that uh, Westerners eat, mind you. Um, mm-hmm. And then all the emerging ones tend to be moving more towards the factory farm style um, farming, which is pretty much, yep. sadly, the majority of farms in the world. Um, yep. Now, I, I, how how um, could uh, veganism or even clean meat, um, like lab-grown meat, uh, play a role um, in the future of um, pre- uh, preventing these um, infectious diseases? Mm-hmm. So this is a really good question. So um, it's actually a little bit tricky just because we have to look at the social structures that would prevent individuals from adopting a vegan lifestyle in the first place. I think that's important versus just a black and white yes or no. So um, in a perfect world, obviously, we would have no suffering. We would all adopt a vegan lifestyle, in my opinion, um, if desired, depending on you know the country that you um, live in. Certain social inequities, though, make it nearly impossible. So in the United States, food deserts are a huge barrier for vegans and vegetarians and just finding stable food or- food sources in general. So for those that don't know, go ahead. Yeah, so just quickly, so for people who don't know, what is a food desert? Yeah. There you go. Um, So food deserts are basically areas, um, and I'm sure they exist in other parts of the world too, but in the United States, they're mostly areas that are in lower income areas that are disproportionately um, uh, people of color. And it's basically an area with um, very little to no food sources. So a lot of times it'll be, you can go to a gas station, you're lucky to find chips and candy, and that's their main source of food. They have to travel pretty far to go to a grocery store. And I have been in those areas before, and um, as I'm a vegetarian, at trying to find options just for me was difficult enough. And so if you're trying to find vegan options, that would be almost impossible. You could probably do it, but you might get scurvy in the process. So it's it's very, very difficult. Um, in addition to that, just easy access to fast food that lacks um, vegan options is another barrier. The United States, we have a lot fewer um, vegan and vegetarian options at fast food restaurants versus the rest of the world. We just, we just don't have those options. Um, and then um, cost is another issue as well. Inflation is very, very bad right now, and it's affecting food sources. Um, so, and wages aren't increasing, even though, you know, food prices and rent is going up. And so a lot of individuals are just struggling just to buy regular food options and vegan options may seem too pricey if they, if, you know, they don't know the ways around. Mm-hmm. Um, all that being said though, however, from a disease standpoint, abstaining from meat and dairy can lower your chances of being exposed to certain diseases, such as um, foodborne illnesses. Many of those involve exposure to um, undercooked meats, unpasteurized dairy products, things like that. I do want to point out, though, that um, a lot of that risks involving vegetables are still there because you can still get foodborne illnesses, obviously. Um, In regards to emerging zoonotic infections, though, many of those, like you said before, are contributed to the conditions of factory farming, which I think we can all agree are deplorable. They're disgusting. Um, When you shove animals in unsanitary conditions with no to little um, ventilation, you add stress, you add poor diets. It's a perfect breeding ground for either new pathogens to mutate or old ones to make a comeback. And so, for example, like I said earlier, the swine flu outbreak, um, the potential source of that has been argued to be factory farming. Novel influenza, like I've said a few times now, it's a huge concern and one that we're really, really worried about. So it's one we have to keep on the radar. Um, Another issue is the wildlife trade that has been um, linked to multiple outbreaks as well. It's highly, highly unregulated. So people are bringing animals in from one country to another to be domesticated as pets, such as uh, monkeys and apes. 
Um, sometimes illegally, but honestly, a lot of times it's legal and they just, the regulations are extremely, extremely lax. And so what happens then, pathogens are given a chance to either mutate or they just are in an area where it's um, not endemic and they just take over very quickly. So um, in short, yes, I do think that veganism could help with assisting the prevention or at least the slowing of certain emerging infectious diseases. However, until we address the social inequities mm-hmm. that make it nearly impossible for people in certain countries, um, I think that it's a conversation that will lead to no real changes. We really have to demand changes to social structures and programs because those will lead to rippling changes to humans, animals, and the environment. Um, one aspect of public health that I love is um, want the One Health approach. And so what that basically does is it um, basically is a collaboration between healthy people, animals, and the environment. So a lot of people make the mistake and they only focus on, you know, healthy humans or healthy animals, et cetera. And that's not going to get us anywhere. We have to have all three be healthy in order for us to thrive as a planet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of people, it's weird, like, um, because I've spent a bit of time with animal rights activists, and mm-hmm. it's hard for me because, um, from the public health standpoint, it's like if if these guys could get together and do all three, um, you, mm-hmm. you, I think you get a far more better movement, um, to a lot to to an extent as well, and also yes. with, with 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 the other thing as well, um going slightly back to to the food density sort of stuff as well um i have noticed there is a huge trend with um the Af- african americans actually going vegan um as yeah. a, as a way of taking back um because as we know the soul food is, like mm-hmm. especially the um the the sort of american americanized soul food is because, is basically mm-hmm. what the slaves ate so a, a lot of the times like i've seen um uh, like a lot of the main vegan influencers now are starting to become, they're starting to be black. There's a lot of black rappers as well, uh, as vegan, yep. black vegan rappers as well, um, for the same reason, because like when, when they started to do do that research on like uh, what they were eating, what, what they used to eat in Africa compared to what they ate in, um, in, um, in America. Um, and I think that, also plays a bit of a role in why there's such a huge um, high rate of chronic disease in those areas because like, you yep. compare it to a white a white person who's been eating meat for um, what however long and a lot longer than the average uh, black person. It's like especially with um, native people um, and, mm-hmm. and milk, yeah, um, all those sorts of different things. Yeah, but. Um, it's, it's, a similar a similar example is like um native american reservations that's mm. like a food desert type thing yeah. and so that's, that's an issue too i do agree though there there is a shift in the the um culture of it right now if i mean even in houston we have multiple ones popping up now which is cool so if it can happen here it can happen anywhere it's just it's slowed down by social inequities mm. which is yeah no definitely houston is actually considered a very very or texas in general is actually being considered a very good place for vegans um, I was very surprised. It's when not I as bad. So I grew up in Oklahoma, mm. and it was definitely a struggle when I went vegetarian. Mm. So it's definitely a lot better here. Mm. Yeah, no. So um, I suppose last sort of couple of questions. Um, do you have any recommendations for students or people looking into um, public health as a career, and especially epidemiology, considering that's your field? 
Yeah, so I have a couple, actually. So um, my biggest recommendation to public health students is to get as much real-world experience before you graduate um, and start job hunting as possible. So this can be hard because a lot of us juggle, you know, school and work and life in general. But if you can secure a few before you graduate, you're going to make it um, make it a lot easier for you to find a decent job once you get out. I have found that many um, MPH programs are not great at preparing for real-world um, what the job market is expecting of graduates. So, for example, my program, they um, taught us the nicest statistical software out there, which is SPSS. It is beautiful. It is lovely. It is also very expensive. <laughs> so um, most places don't use that. They either use SAS or they just use Excel, And so, which is simple. You can, you can easily learn Excel, but if you're not prepared for that, you're, you're just not going to be ready for it. And so my advice would be to take as many biostatistical electives that involve software use as you can, because the more exposure, the more comfortable you're going to get. They're not hard to use, but if you're just thrown into it, it can be very, very intimidating. Um, and it will limit your, your job options once you get out if you don't have that experience. Um, and um, my second recommendation is just to remember to be empathetic and non-judgmental. So as public health professionals, it is not our place to judge the decisions um, that others make. And what I mean by that in regards to life decisions people make. So, for example, like I previously said, my expertise, my love and interest is um, viral hepatitis and zoonotic diseases. Hepatitis B and C, for those of you that don't know, um, are associated largely with intravenous drug users or um, those that engage in high-risk sex practices. You can easily judge individuals like that that are positive. However, doing so doesn't do anything. Um, it makes them distrust you. So rather than judge, we can be empathetic. And one thing that I always mention and I always harp on is that pathogens don't care who we are. They don't care what we do for a living. They don't care what our education is. They're there to invade and propagate if they're given the chance. And so, yes, individuals um, living a certain um, lifestyle may give them more chances, but ultimately pathogens only need one chance in the right circumstance. So given the perfect storm, we all could be at risk at certain points in our lives. So just remember to be empathetic. Um, my third recommendation for students is that just remember to be culturally aware when you make recommendations. I can't say this enough. Um, or when researching diseases or events in general. So just remember, not every culture is the same as yours. So what might be normal or abnormal to you will either be normal or abnormal for someone else. And we have to be sensitive when we make these recommendations. Otherwise, individuals are going to be less likely to trust us, which can lead to generational distrust, which can also lead to devastating pre um, preventable effects. So I actually have a story about this. Um, I lived in the Grand Cayman uh, very briefly. And at the time, this was right when the Zika virus was hitting and it was you know, making the news with American travelers. Scientists came to the island because the island um, at the time didn't have the Zika virus. And they were going to they had a plan. They were going to prevent it from happening, prevent it from taking over the island. Well, they came on and they didn't speak to the locals. They just had a plan. And when they spoke to the locals, they didn't try to explain it in layman's terms. They didn't take into effect I'm sorry, take into account their culture or maybe the fact that they weren't as um, scientifically educated as they were. Ultimately, what happened was the locals were able to veto the idea that was in the charter. Um, scientists couldn't help and Zika hit. And who's going to be affected now? It's going to be the locals. And this was 100% preventable, in my opinion, had they just been a little bit nicer and culturally aware. So just remember to be culturally aware. Do not assume and just be nice. Um, treating people kindly when you give um, um, uh, public health education or your expertise goes a long way, even when it's hard and it will be hard. I can guarantee that with my experiences with COVID, but just be as nice as you can. Just, just be nice. 
Um, and then for those that are looking at public health, this is a great time to get involved. Um, COVID opened a lot of doors for public health professionals. <laughs> it really did. Um, we're getting way more light on the profession than we ever did. So it's funny, pre-pandemic, most people didn't even know what an epidemiologist was. They thought it was the same as an entomologist. So they thought we, we did stuff with bugs. <laughs> and now we're getting exposure and lots of opportunities for funding. Um, research opportunities right now are, are vast because we have that light on us now, which is really, really cool. Um, an MPH degree or just public health degree in general can open a lot of doors. And you're not only limited to public, um, I'm sorry, to government work, which is really cool as well. So it's highly, highly marketable and, I, my opinion, a great investment. So if you're interested, I just recommend that you check out a program that fits your lifestyle, um, whether it's online or in person. I don't think one is better than the other. Um, I'm not ashamed to say I did mine online so I could work. It worked out very well. I've had a very good career. Um, and just make sure, and this is really important, I don't know if this really applies um, to Australia, but here in the U.S., we have a lot of for-profit universities that have popped up, and they're not actually accredited, and they tote um, MPH degrees that are kind of useless. So um, that's just my advice. Just be careful. Do your research on your school. Just make sure it's accredited so that way you don't waste your time and money. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, most of Australia's universities are public and, well, kind of free for most students through tax <laughs> so basically nice ba ba basically just to make you a bit jealous there um oh yeah yeah, we, I, when, yeah, when yeah. i heard you were from australia i was already jealous so. <laughs> yeah no so all of our um universities pretty much um as long as they're an accredited course um they'll be um in my, like for my case because i'm on um welfare payments as a student so i get paid essentially mm -hmm. paid to study um, but on top on top of that, because <laughs> because I'm on those uh, welfare payments because it's technically below the minimum wage, um, mm -hmm. um, we actually get um, even more than that, where uh, half of our degree is or about half of our degree is paid for. We have no fees like uh, like uh, basic fees that people would pay for, and um, the other half that we pay for is paid for through tax once we hit a certain threshold. That is, it's beautiful to hear, but it's it's just like so foreign to me because I'm like, yeah, 60 grand for a master's. That sounds normal to me. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so if people want to contact you, um, I assume LinkedIn would probably be the best place. Yeah, they can send me a message yeah, on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll and then if they have more questions, I can give them my uh, personal email. That's fine. Yeah. I, I love talking about diseases and events and public health. So I get... Mm. When I say I get excited, I mean it. I get very excited. I, I wake up excited to do my job. I'm very lucky. And so if they have questions, mm. they can feel free to reach out and I can always give them information. Yep. Yeah, no, I'll um, add a link to your profile in the, um, in the, um, what's in, in the,